is something we could be focusing on better is the spread of protein across the day. So a lot of our guidelines are based on here's what you should eat in a total day. Um, but there is not a lot of guidelines as to how that, I guess, the spread of macronutrient across the day. And we often back end our energy intake. So we eat a really large dinner. Often that dinner is very protein heavy. Uh, and it, we end up eating a lot more protein at the end of the day than we do at the start of the day. But it's it's a little bit, I think, a little bit one-eyed to just look at how much total protein someone's getting when the muscle's only going to see protein in the bolus that it gets. And we know that as soon as you consume over, you know, 25, 30 grams of protein, your muscle's not going to be able to take up much more. So you better to spread it out and, and hit the muscle more times than, you know, have a, a much bigger bolus of protein at the end of the day. Listen, Ed, we really appreciate your time, as I said to you, to off air, trying to pick out one or two of your uh, pieces of work or articles that I found interesting. Pretty much led me down a rabbit hole of reading all of your work, which I found a whole line of research interesting. Um, before we jump into the episode itself, give people a little bit of a background about you, where you're at, uh, how you got into this field and all that good stuff. Yeah, cool. Um, so... I am Evelyn Parr and I'm originally from New Zealand. Um, I did my undergraduate and master's studies in New Zealand at University of Otago, um, kind of got sucked into the research world um, through not getting or not going into an honours program, uh, got into master's, really enjoyed that, slightly burnt out and did a year and a half of um, research assistant work uh, and eventually sort of got pushed out the door by my supervisor at the time and sort of said, you know, you need to go somewhere else and, and do some more work and ended up um, over here in Melbourne in John Hawley's lab, uh, which was rather fortuitous. I've had a, a great uh, career here so far. So I started my PhD 2011 here in Australia uh, and thought, you know, I'll just move to Australia, I'll do my PhD, then I'll go back home, uh, which clearly hasn't happened. I've, st I've stayed in Melbourne. Super lucky that um, although I changed unis during my PhD, which was interesting, we moved from RMIT to ACU, uh, that John got some funding at the end of my PhD uh, and I, I was able to, to stay here. Uh, and now sort of moved slightly away from what I was doing in my PhD, but still with similar themes and just building on that in this sort of postdoc role. So I'm now yeah postdoc here at the Mary McKillop Institute of Health Research based at ACU uh, in Melbourne uh, and here for a, a little while longer, hopefully. I've got, got some good projects on the go. So that's sort of my background. So with that, what are your primary areas of interest? Yeah, I've had body composition, I guess, as an interest for quite some time in terms of maintaining muscle mass with dietary and exercise interventions. So I have an exercise science background, but I've spent a lot of time working on nutrition studies. So I guess I'd be some form of nutritionist, um, definitely not a dietitian, but I've been really lucky to always work with dietitians. Uh, and, and my current sort of research colleague, um, Brooke Devlin, and I do quite a lot of studies together. And it's a nice relationship of sort of co-owning um, work and, and having sort of our own expertise. Uh, so from body composition, I've kind of 
and and obviously dietary interventions got more into meal timing uh, in the last couple of years with a sort of theme of circadian rhythms in there as well. Uh, and I mean, the type of exercise is always of interest. I've got a PhD student working on some sort of high intensity versus endurance and resistance type work as well. So it's sort of across the spectrum of, of health with uh, diet and exercise as the intervention types. And you're specifically targeting kind of overweight obesity and moving in and around that kind of diabetic, pre-diabetic space as well, huh? Yeah, so my PhD work was certainly focused on individuals with overweight and obesity in terms of trying to achieve a better outcome in, for weight loss with not just losing fat mass but also maintaining lean mass, uh, where lean mass is a really important functional tissue. You'll know that from all of your cancer research, but from a perspective of healthy aging and trying to maintain muscle mass as we age, which the natural process of aging means that we lose muscle mass. You know, we're, we're in a sort of a double-edged sword of trying to get somebody to lose weight to potentially improve their metabolic health, but without trying to lose that really important tissue that's really hard to get, uh, let alone maintain. So losing it is not a good outcome. This is something that is so important to Airfield. And I think it's a really... Um, it's going to be more of a continuing conversation um, in the coming years because a lot of what we espouse is the maintenance or improvement of, of lean body mass in a variety of cancers, particularly something like um, prostate cancer where androgen deprivation therapy results in loss of lean mass. What I've kind of started to really battle with and, and shift away from, you know, even some of that of my opinions and my supervisors is you said it, putting on muscle is intensely difficult and requires um, a really progressive program and appropriate caloric balance to where if you look at, at least in air world, the implications of ADT, yeah, you might lose two or 3% of, of lean body mass, but you're gaining 10 to 15 to 20% of fat mass. So arguably the question then comes up in what's more important to target. And if you can maintain muscle mass, while dropping fat mass, arguably that, that's probably going to lead to better outcomes. And I think I've moved slightly in my thinking from sort of early PhD to now in that it's not just about mass, but also the quality of that tissue. Uh, and that's primarily probably been, I've, I've seen people, you know, do training programs for X number of weeks and not be able to gain any lean mass and feel, you know, oh, this, this isn't working. Yet you look at them and they can leg press 50% more than they could at, at baseline, which to me translate to, you know, they can get up and out of a chair many more times without fatiguing than somebody that, that, that can't. I mean, that's a simple example, but to me it's not always about the mass but about the quality. So my PhD largely used DEXA, so the uh, body composition scanning, to assess lean mass. And I think naively I was thinking in my PhD, this is great, you know, I've got this really great technology that I've been able to use but now I, I kind of look at it in a different light of that's great if that's the change in lean mass, but what's the change in function? Uh, I think you really need to have both to be looking at the outcome. And when you have medications, you know, such as or treatments such as ADT, um, 
you're, you're fighting a battle in terms of the medication is there to treat the primary cause, but it has these secondary outcomes. Um, and I, I think for me, it would still be the focus on the lean mass rather than the focus on reducing the um, medical therapy induced obesity, I guess you would, you would describe it um, because that's then going to have the potentially the best quality of life outcomes, I would assume. Yeah, I would think so. At least directly implicated in um, the associations of lean body mass with, you know, risk of recurrence, um, prognosis, and even mortality. But I would fall back on what you said. In a lot of the studies investigating the association with lean body mass with these outcomes, haven't actually looked at function in addition to. So it may be that it's a product of that as an emerging field as well, and actually collaborating with people like us to try and figure out what measures um, are probably appropriate to include with that, you know? Absolutely. I don't think it needs to be, you know, hugely specific equipment. There's, there's tests that you can do, I think, to measure uh, or give an indication of, of muscle quality without having, you know, to take a biopsy or, or have someone on a leg press machine. Um, but, you know, when we measure lean mass, we're often measuring water mass as well. And so sometimes that can come into play. And so we see people that lose lean mass. And, and I, I typically with, with measuring body composition, like to set people up in a standardized way so I can look at the trunk versus the limbs. Cause I find that the lean mass loss is often in the trunk, which is maybe they've had a bowel movement, maybe they're, they're storing more fluid, you know, there's, there's other issues or other things that can be contributing to the changes in lean mass but if you're looking at the legs or the limbs or the arms um the legs or the arms sorry then i think you're getting better measures that are probably more appropriate to what the training that they've been doing um but it's it's still got to come back to i think this combination of the mass and the function of the mass and really if all you can measure is the function that that's the, the outcome for that individual in terms of their quality of life in terms of what they can do to, to me, that's that's a better outcome. I think the the conversation is is almost always um, in absolutes as well, where we're evaluating studies that have investigated either the loss of fat mass or maintenance or improvement of muscle mass and quality, without actually understanding that the application is individual. And we don't, you know, if we're if we're using interventions, we don't have to try and attack everything at once. It doesn't have to be an either or. It can be synergistic or sequential where maybe right now we need to focus on muscle mass once we get you into a habit of consistent exercise you're seeing some good improvements in in mass and quality maybe then we can maintain that and target fat mass thereafter i think the entire diet industry or weight loss industry is built the other way around you know let's let's help you lose the weight first and then let's get you into other programs when you feel more comfortable being in an exercise situation. But that's where, you know, AEPs or accredited exercise physiologists really come into play in, in my mind. And that's, you know, the supportive role to educate and advise on exercise for anybody. It, it doesn't have to be a person, you know, person doing it on their own. Um, but, Certainly, I, th I think there's no reason it can't happen the other way around. And when you do improve your muscle quality, you're then going to, you know, alter other aspects of your metabolism that might have some but a small effect on fat mass um, that then you can use other interventions after that in terms of targeting fat mass reduction. 
Yeah, I think it's also worth pulling from some of the uh, behavior changes, like psychological literature that l- leads us to understand in terms of weight management uh, research, if people aren't losing a certain amount of weight in those initial periods, they may not be inclined to continue exercise. So at least from a weight management perspective, we do have to see a tangible amount, and that's going to differ for different people, of weight loss to actually, because if people don't identify as exercises, they don't like doing it, and they're coming in and um, they're not seeing any improvements in muscle mass, and they're, they're, you know, progress in terms of weight loss is slower than we would hope. Um, that can lead to, you know, uh, I suppose disappointment and potentially dropout. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's where we've got to shift the focus from exercise as a weight loss strategy to exercise as an improvement in, um, I guess, in more overall health and appreciate the benefits that we get from exercise that are irrespective of weight loss. Um, if we're getting, you know, better mental clarity, less depression, like in terms of mental health improvements, um, improvements in, in glycemic control, improvements in muscle mass, um, the list goes on in terms of what benefits you can get from exercise. But if somebody's only going to view exercise as a weight loss tool, and then that doesn't turn out to be a weight loss tool, then exercise is going to have this negative connotation for them. Um, which I think there's so many benefits of being fitter, whether that's strength or, or aerobic, uh, that outweigh, lap pun intended, outweigh any of the sort of weight loss effects. Uh, but it's the expectation that somebody has as to how that exercise is going to, to cause the effect. Um, so if I could do one thing in my career as a scientist, it would take be taking away the exercise as a driver for weight loss and rather mm-hmm. exercise as a driver for improved health and improved, um, well, I guess, quality of life. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting, particularly when you look at those combination um, studies, that distinction is rarely made. It is kind of... Uh, proposed to participants that this is a, a kitchen sink approach. We're going to use exercise and some sort of diet modification to try and get you to a certain degree of weight loss. Yeah, I I, I still think it's probably the best outcome to, to or it achieves the best outcomes. I should say when you use exercise and diet. The problem is that's normally quite a lot of change for somebody to impart at one time. Now, if they're in a research study, that's cool. They've got a lot of support. But whether they're able to actually carry on that after said intervention finishes, I think is, and and I think the weight maintenance literature in terms of here, you've induced this loss of body fat, now keep it off, um, is is really not that great. We, we still don't really know what's the best way for people to keep weight off. Because the tendency is people will just creep back to kind of where they were, um, old habits, depending on the individual, like, my weight loss study for my PhD, we had over a hundred individuals and there's a few I can think of off the top of my head that have, have kept the weight off that their, their lifestyle completely changed and they embodied, I guess the learn or what we were trying to teach them as a part of the intervention and sort of measure those changes. Um, but, but I can't say that for, for all of the participants. Um, but I still think the combination is the best. It's just, is that really palatable, for somebody to take on, make those massive changes rather than why it's, I guess, why it's often sold as 
you know, start with diet, you're going to then lose weight, then add the exercise, you know, and once people are starting to achieve and, and feel more positive um, and a better outlook after the, the weight loss, then add an exercise. The caveat or the catch then becomes, is it then too late by the time that people add it in? Are they adding in the right type of exercise? Is there a right type of exercise? Um, and, and how is it, you know, or do they even add an exercise? Do they just try a diet and the diet doesn't work and then exercise doesn't get added in at all? And maybe if they'd started with diet and exercise, they realized they don't like dieting, but they love exercise. That's a good outcome. So I feel like I'm going on a rant here. That's the nuances of research that requires uh, an understanding of scientific methods to be able to extrapolate that out on an individual level. Because there, even even with those large randomized control trials with lots of support, a registered dietitian on board, AEPs on board, you still get people that decline to participate. You still get people that don't want to do it, don't have the time. So there's a lot of these caveats that are kind of like, if you can, if, 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 then you might see some improvements. And being able to tease apart that nuance and bring it on the individual level, I think is really important. The problem is science doesn't like the individual. In my opinion, science likes the mean. Uh, so it becomes, you know, difficult to to ascertain, you know, like how it is going to affect people in different ways when you may only have one or two of those type of individuals. I think people's willingness to change uh, plays a huge role. Uh, in how they're going to normally they've, they've sought out this sort of research study. So their willingness to change is already a little bit there, but it's either I'm willing to learn from you and I want to take this forward or I'm willing to do this for a set amount of time. And that's all I want to do. Um, and they're two very different types of people, which then I believe has very different outcomes along the line from when they finish said intervention. So coming back to your PhD, that was the one where you did different compositions of diet? Yeah, we had everybody doing the same exercise um, regimen. So they were doing three days a week of supervised resistance exercise. And then on the other four days of the week, we're encouraged to sort of meet at least 250 uh, kilocalories of, of activity. So four uh, Ks of, of walking or one K of swimming or 16 Ks of cycling or using, you know, equipment at a gym if they wanted to. Uh, and in that study, we looked at three different dietary uh, compositions. So we were looking at two that were uh, higher in protein and whether the increased protein was offset by a slightly lower carbohydrate or slightly lower fat uh, versus sort of, a, I guess, a healthy control um, meeting Australian uh, guidelines. Um, and we didn't provide any food, but we did. they did see a, a dietitian every two weeks for 16 weeks of the study. So it was pretty full-on uh, dietary changes, and it was energy-restricted um, relative to their sort of starting energy requirements as well. Um, yeah, let's uh, before we go on to the, to the uh, outcomes, talk a little bit about um, how much there was an energy deficit? Did you uh, change or did you reassess periodically throughout the study and, and change that um, kind of baseline caloric need? Um, we didn't change that from when we set it at the start, which was based on uh, an equation based on their height and weight, like very generic male-female um, equation for total energy requirements. Uh, and then we did a 250 kilocalorie a day energy deficit from the diet, as well as they 
likely to have been exercising around 200, 250 kilocalories as well. So overall about 500 kilocalories. So pretty moderate on the scheme of, of energy restricted. Um, and uh, we didn't reassess that um, throughout the study. I don't know whether that would have changed had we. Um, I, one thing I wish we had have checked was people's resting metabolic rates. So mm-hmm. we've started doing our studies since then uh, at baseline, measuring um, using DEXA, using lean mass um, to calculate their energy requirements, but also matching that with resting metabolic rate uh, and using an activity monitor to assess someone's sort of, I guess, normal physical activity. Um, But we were trying to induce weight loss. So they were doing three days a week of resistance training. Like that's probably the maximum amount you get someone that's gone from zero, you know, days a week uh, to be doing as, and, and then having, you know, they had specific uh, foods to be consuming after exercise. So the protein groups were consuming protein, whereas it wasn't protein specific for the control group. Um, and so they, they stayed on the same energy band throughout the study. We found that there wasn't any difference between the three diets. So irrespective of consuming more protein, we found that the, the loss of body fat was similar between the three diets uh, and the maintenance of, of lean mass was, was similar as well. And look, we got a bit criticized in review on not having a control group uh, in terms of a non-exercise control group. But our counter to that is there would be no energy restricted diet where we wouldn't suggest people were doing uh, resistance exercise to try and maintain lean mass. So w- this is important because uh, in relation to the maintenance of lean mass, what was the lower, the lowest uh, kind of protein content of their diet? So the control group were on 15% of energy intake from protein. I'd have to look back at my paper. You've, you're stumping me now on my own work as to um, what that was in terms of grams of protein per kilo of body mass. Um, but I don't remember it being lower than 0.8, which is the recommended, uh, I guess, the, the recommended dietary intake um, for adults. Uh, although there's many, many studies that will now say you need, you know, far more than 0.8 grams uh, of protein to optimally, uh, I guess, maintain and, and gain lean mass. We weren't trying to get them to to gain lean mass, but we were just trying to mitigate the loss of lean mass. Which is in, important in itself because there is this movement towards um, even calling for public guidelines to incorporate higher protein intakes. Um Anyone that's worked in this space knows how difficult it is to get uh, untrained older adults, overweight uh, individuals to consume adequate amounts of protein. So if you can get to that minimal dose and maintain lean body mass, that's an important outcome as well. Instead of trying to stuff, you know, an extra X amount of grams per kilogram per day. Yeah, so I just found my table. We had 0.9 grams per kilo body mass in the control group throughout the intervention versus around 1.2, 1.3 in those higher protein uh, groups, um, which you know makes sense. I mean, they all came in at one gram or, or above, um, and I I think definitely in older adults are not meeting their protein intake requirements, but most middle-aged and younger adults, I think, are definitely meeting their protein requirements. What I think is something we could be focusing on better is the spread of protein across the day. So a lot of our guidelines are based on here's what you should eat in a total day. 
Um, but there is not a lot of guidelines as to how that, so I guess, the spread of macronutrient across the day. And we often back end our energy intake, so we eat a really large dinner. Often that dinner is very protein heavy, uh, and it, we end up eating a lot more protein at the end of the day than we do at the start of the day compared to some of the, I guess, sort of Scandinavian countries where there's a lot more protein foods that are consumed at breakfast. We're not as good at that. We're getting better. There's all these, you know, high protein yogurts and high protein milks and things that we can then, I guess, target those times like breakfast and lunch where we're a bit lower in, in protein. Um, but it's it's a little bit, I think, a little bit one-eyed to just look at how much total protein someone's getting when the muscle's only going to see protein in the bolus that it gets. And we know that as soon as you consume over, you know, 25, 30 grams of protein, your muscle's not going to be able to take up much more. So you better to spread it out and, and hit the muscle more times than, you know, have a, a much bigger bolus of protein at the end of the day. And you've done a lot of interesting work on the, the kind of acute meal setting and the, the period after. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm quite interested in because the dietary recommendations are so, I think, loose in terms of here's what you should eat in a total day. We don't really eat the same, exactly the same at each of the three main meals plus the snacks that we eat throughout the day. Uh, and that has an effect on our metabolism. So I am interested in glycemic control, glucose and insulin regulation, um, especially with respect to pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes where glucose handling is, is impaired. Uh, so I think it's really important that we look at, well, how are people eating normally and how does that going to affect their glycemic control? But how could we improve that or in what ways could we improve that? And I did a study with people with pre-diabetes based on sort of a big breakfast versus a, a big dinner. And I guess the big dinner condition was kind of like, well, this is what people do normally. Don't eat a lot at breakfast time and, and you know, have this really large um, evening intake um, versus a, a big breakfast, um, which is really atypical, um, but had been shown in a couple of studies to induce more weight loss. So a study that was published in obesity in 2013, um, I think it was around a 12-week intervention. And when they had a big breakfast, they had more weight loss. The catch in that study, which most people don't see, is that the macronutrient content of the large meal versus the small meal was quite different. And what that means is then how the body handles that in terms of glucose and insulin then impacts on the second meal um, that was the same. Uh, and then so when you have a, you know, a big meal that has carbohydrate in the morning and then a small meal of protein in the evening versus the other way around, a small meal of protein in the morning and a big meal of carbohydrate in the evening – is it the fact of the meal size or is it the fact of that the composition changed and, and one group had lots of carb in the evening and one group had lots of carb in the morning? So we wanted to clamp all of that and look at it for people with, uh, with prediabetes. And we didn't find any benefit from having that big breakfast in the morning. Um, people with prediabetes often have, I guess, an impaired glucose tolerance in the morning. So it, it didn't improve as we expected that from the, the previous research, which was uh, in um, they've done some in people with overweight and obesity and they've done some in people with type 2 diabetes. Um, so I guess in a way it was a little bit disappointing, but reaffirmed to me that 
when we're telling people or if we're providing a message like, oh, you need to eat more at breakfast so you eat less at the end of the day, we need to be a bit specific about what that needs to be. Um, and a friend of mine just published a, a paper in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in people with type 2 diabetes that simply changing the macronutrients at breakfast and not changing the rest of the day. So a lower carbohydrate breakfast versus a sort of a more normal oats carbohydrate breakfast certainly improved their glycemic control in the morning, but it didn't have any impact on the other two meals. So when you had an improved glycemic control in the morning with the low carbohydrate breakfast, that then made the overall day better um, for those individuals um, with type 2 diabetes. So just changing, focusing on one meal, um, and that research that I've been doing is kind of taking me towards the, the time-restricted eating, um, which I hope we're getting to soon, um, where I get all these comments all the time of, you know, time-restricted eating means you can't eat breakfast, which makes, if you really want to roll me up, ask me that question, um, because it, it doesn't. We think of breakfast in this context of it must be consumed between 7 and before you go to work whatever, 6.30, whatever, before you go to work to be considered breakfast. If you don't eat until after then, you're just eating a mid-morning snack. I mean, the term breakfast is breaking the fast. Um, whether, and there's a lot of epi studies say, you know, it's really important if you don't have breakfast, you're likely to have a higher BMI. They're, I guess, implying causation without being able to actually measure that. Um, but I'm not so sure uh, in terms of glycemic control that we really should be shunting the body full of energy quite early in the morning when we've already got other hormones like cortisol um, peaking and, and telling the liver to release glucose um, and we're better to delay it slightly uh, and and improve, I guess, the response to, to that breakfast. Uh, before we go on, what was the name of your friend who published the sodium uh, clinical nutrition? Oh, sorry. Monique Francois is the second author. She's a friend of mine who's a lecturer at University of Wollongong and her PhD student, Courtney Chang, is the first author of that paper. She will appreciate oh. you not giving her acknowledgements. <laughs> Jonathan Little is the other author on that paper. All three of them are fantastic researchers. And they did have a few comments of like, duh, of course, a low-carbohydrate breakfast is going to be better. But I think that that wasn't the only outcome is that it didn't change the other meal. So then when they did have carbohydrate at the next meal, they responded the same as if they'd had carbohydrate at breakfast. And that's really important. Um, so we need to be a bit better. I think summarize what I, my previous rant, we need to be a bit better at providing guidelines in terms of diet that are specific to, to meals. We already eat a lot of protein at the end of the day. Let's put a bit more at breakfast. Let's maybe take a little bit of, of carbohydrate out and move that you know, somewhere else during, during the day um, and just reshuffle and, and, but learn a bit more about how that reshuffling is going to, I guess, affect um, outcomes like metabolic health and glycemic control. So with your, uh, that was your previous rant, with your current rant of avoiding uh, or at least, you know, kind of looking into this time-restricted eating phase, is yeah. this in the context of absence of exercise? Look, at this stage, there haven't been any good studies that have combined time-restricted eating and exercise. There have been a couple of training studies that have added in a time-restricted eating group, um, two that I know of. Uh, one that I think did that quite well um, and made sure that the participants that were exercising and time-restricted eating still had enough protein after exercise. 
And so the outcomes for those participants was quite good. The other did evening time restricted eating on non-training days, but that evening was four hours of eating. So if somebody trained the day before, maybe only had one meal after they trained resistance exercise and then had a really long time of fasting, so no protein you know, near the muscle, uh, and those participants didn't gain any lean mass from doing, I think it was eight weeks of training, whereas the non-time-restricted eating group gained about a kilo and a half. I mean, I'd know which group I'd rather be in, to be completely honest, um, but there's been no studies of time-restricted eating as one sort of intervention and then adding exercise onto that. Um, that's a bit of another bugbear of mine at the moment. I'm not sure. It depends on the context. It always depends, as one of my supervisors taught me. Um, I'm not sure if or what the added benefits are going to be of exercise with time-restricted eating. In the context, I think it's been studied very okay so far. It's mainly for losing weight, uh, metabolic health outcomes in the absence of exercise or under the conditions of we advise participants to increase their physical activity to meet activity guidelines, i.e. walking for, you know, 150, 300 minutes a week, um, which I think is quite achievable when you're doing time-restricted eating. Um, I have a lot of participants ask me if I do it myself and I certainly do on days I can't exercise. But if I'm going to go do a pool session at, at 6am, then I need to eat something before I go and I damn need to eat something after I'm finished swimming for an hour and a half. Um, so on those days, I'm not sure that time restricted eating is, is as important. Um, but I'm going to study that in my next study. So, <laughs> so that, that's cool. We probably jumped a, jumped ahead a few steps. So let's yeah. come back to um, the premise of this uh, and kind of where this idea stems from in the context of what you're doing around um, perhaps diabetes or maintenance of, of or improving me metabolic health. Yeah. So time-restricted eating, in some ways, people look at as just another one of the types of diets that's on the market as um, enticing and sexy right now and, and maybe easy for people to do. Um, but... To me, the underlying science with time-restricted eating is aligning your eating window with your body's circadian rhythms or with when your body is best able to handle and, and process food. Um, so eating late, with, there's a lot of epidemiological studies showing that eating late is, is not very good in terms of glycemic control, metabolic health, weight gain. Uh, and that's likely in related to we become more sedentary at the end of the day. Uh, we eat dinner, sit on the couch, watch whatever TV program that you like watching uh, and don't move a lot and then go to bed and lie down. Like we, we don't, we're not, we don't do a lot at the end of the day, but also in terms of what our body normally does is that it's not very good at processing glucose. We're not very good at releasing insulin. We're more insulin resistant at the end of the day. And that's when we eat the biggest meal. So we're combining together all of these factors that bringing dinner earlier and having less snacking after dinner may in, it sort of improve metabolic health. And with regards to sort of earlier in the morning, yeah, I mean, there'd, there'd be people that would disagree with me, but I think slightly delaying breakfast means you're delaying that period where the uh, cortisol and a couple other hormones are signaling 
and telling the liver, release glucose, this person's waking up, they need help, you know, they need glucose in their circulation. If we delay the meal just slightly or the first eating occasion just slightly, we miss that peak and therefore the body's a little bit more ready to, to handle that meal. Um, there are a couple of studies, though, of early time-restricted feeding so or eating, so finishing eating by about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and they still see improved glycemic profiles, so without delaying breakfast. I'm just not sure how people socially can finish eating by 3 p.m., right? As if I, when I tell my participants, you know, let, try and eat, finish dinner by 7, they can normally still eat with their partner, with their family. You know, it, it's not prohibitive to being social. Yeah. I mean, you, you nailed it. This is one of those things where the, the fitness industry is, has run with. Um, you see all these people talking about the different types of, of fasting they're doing. Like they're doing, oh, I'm doing a 16-8 or I'm doing a, an 18-6 or a 24 in terms of the time they're fasting versus not. And it's making the assumption that it's an on-off switch. Yeah. Where it, it is, as you said, we there's, there's still investigation into maybe the appropriate time or, or how long you need to have with the restriction. Yeah. And the animal research is far more advanced than the human research, but I won't talk about that because I, you know, it's, it's the way that we get to doing human research rather than the outcomes for humans. Right. There are a lot of animal studies. There's, there's a great animal study. I mean, I said I wasn't going to, but I am now. There's a great animal study looking at five days on two days off of the time restricted eating model of eight hours. So can you, be really good on five days and then, you know, have a couple of blowout days probably on Friday and Saturdays, you know, when, when you're less in control of your, your social life. Um, and they found beneficial outcomes in terms of metabolic health, in terms of glycemic control, in terms of body weight regulation, similar to the group that did or the, the mice that did that for seven days, whether that works with humans. Look, it probably does because, it's very difficult for somebody to adhere to something on seven days of the week. And, you know, it is uh, most days is, is better than no days, um, but most days is probably better than trying to or and potentially impairing your, I guess, mental health by uh, trying to do something on, on seven days of the week. The Going back to your question about the actual time window or the placement of the time window, we're so early into the time-restricted eating human studies that are done really well um, that we don't know yet. And it may be that for somebody that's more of an evening type, just moving their evening slightly earlier um, but still keeping, I guess, a bit more evening suits them um, and is still has a beneficial outcome over telling them, well, the only time you can eat to be healthy is if you finish by 6 p.m. and that doesn't work. Um, I think we have to still keep feasibility in, in here. There's been one study that's directly looked at the time window and the placement of that time window, a group from Adelaide, Leonie Hilbrone's group, and they looked at early 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. and a delayed, so midday till 8 p.m., uh, just a week, men at risk of type 2 diabetes with overweight obesity. But the only benefit that they found over the early versus the late uh, or the delayed was fasting glucose. Otherwise, their um, response to a glucose test was improved, um, whether they did the early or, or the delayed. And so they were eating for, say, more than 12 or 13 hours to get into this, you know, before the study as their, as their normal. So they reduced their energy or their time window of, of energy intake uh, by about four, four to five hours. 
Um, so we're just sort of getting there. My inkling is in some people it's going to make a difference, but, but it's probably more important that we have, I guess, a, a longer fasting time to have less postprandial hits. Um, but I know someone's going to catch me at some point and go, well, what's happening to protein synthesis? We talk all the time about spreading protein out. If you're only letting someone eat within eight hours, what's going to happen to their muscle mass? Um, which is a great question. I'm glad I asked it of myself. We have to look at that in, in another study I'm doing with uh, Imra Kao, a, a postdoc here, which we're running at the moment, just to to nail that down and see, you know, is that sort of normal eating window of, you know, 11 to 12 hours, is that really important for giving the body enough time to process and, and help maintain uh, protein synthesis across a normal day of eating versus squishing it all into eight hours? Yeah, I suppose that was going to be one of my other questions. If you were studying it in free living conditions or manipulating the diet in some way when you're asking people to to restrict this eating pattern. Yep. So we've done one study that we're in the process of publishing right now where we provided all the meals for five days and then measured people on the fifth day. Uh, we actually kept them at uni for 25-ish hours. We had them sleeping in the nursing suite and took biopsies every four hours from their legs. Um, so that was a very controlled provision of meal. Let's you know measure bloods every hour and then every two hours overnight to have a look at uh, what's happening um, in terms of metabolism when we when we do go from a sort of wide eating window to a, a time restricted eating window, um, this study I'm doing with Imra, we're providing all meals, looking at protein synthesis over ten days with the uh, doubly labeled water technique and incorporation of that label of the water into um, someone's muscle um, to see how protein synthesis is changing. So again, providing all meals. Um, but I'm actually running a study at the moment with individuals that have type 2 diabetes. Uh, and it, I guess it is a feasibility study in that we haven't looked at or nobody's looked at time-restricted eating and individuals with type 2 diabetes um, to see whether it's it's practical and feasible for them for them to do it and then what effect that might have on their glycemic control. So I've had 12 participants finish that study so far. They do two weeks of their normal diet. We sort of monitor them, see what their normal is, uh, and then ask them to, on as many days of the week as they can, restrict their energy intake to around 10 a.m. till 7 p.m. Um, and the participants so far, the, the adherence to being able to do the time-restricted eating varies. There's some people 100% adherent. Others, you know, one day a week, um, they can't adhere. There's a birthday, there's an occasion, et cetera. Um, and a couple of people where it, it's just a bit harder and, and they were more adhering sort of three or four days a week. Um, I guess what we're finding that's interesting so far is it doesn't seem like people are reducing their energy intake, which has been touted as, I guess, one of the benefits of time-restricted eating. And it fits in with the, oh, this is just another intermittent fasting type of diet. Um, you just eat a little bit less and therefore you lose weight. Um, which I disagree with because I think it's a little bit more complicated and a little bit more scientific or a little bit more specific than you're just eating a little bit less um, because my participants certainly aren't, aren't eating less. They're just squishing it all in. Um, and maybe that's because they're at a slightly later life stage than some of the other studies who study younger individuals um, and maybe they're just used to their patterns of eating. So they're just eating the same. They're just, they're just fitting it in a shorter time window. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I have to commend you on the feasibility of it because 
and again come back to airfield a lot of uh work we do in terms of feasibility is just about transparency and i think it's really important to identify the challenges and uh you know when you go to publish this work and you say well look 70 percent of the people were able to adhere to this 80 percent of the time whereas 30 percent couldn't do it at all that's really important for people to understand and take away whereas i think in the past it, it has almost been a, a kind of a blanket statement or, or just going for the means and, and that feasibility step is a really important step i think yeah i i agree and for me it's if it's not feasible for people to do why are we studying it you know it might be the greatest thing in the world but um if people are not going to to be able to do it then it's it's not very useful um and i guess the interesting thing with the feasibility is there's there is some bias because people are going to self-select being interested in something like this probably if they feel like they could do it um which means i'm probably not talking to a group of people that probably think they can't do it and therefore they're i'm i'm sort of biasing whether it's feasible or not because they're missing this proportion of people that that already feel like they can't do it for whatever reason um i don't think time restricting <laughs> time restricted eating is going to save the world um but i think it's it's another one of those i guess it's a strategy that could be added to the list of somebody that somebody can try and if it works in their lifestyle then that's cool um that's a good outcome but it's not going to work for everybody yeah, and I think you nailed uh, an important point there. It probably would be worth looking at um, baseline levels and or changes in self-efficacy or intention to to continue this in uh, where you might be excluding your... And it's the same for us, you know, look, you've got people who live in rural Australia who don't have the money, time or travel to get to us. But you then have people who come to us who are interested but don't think they can do any of it. So yeah. looking at changes in self-efficacy, particularly as it relates to um, the ability to restrict your eating, could be really um, uh, interesting for, for maybe tracking follow-up. And the people with higher levels of self-efficacy or even change in self-efficacy were ones who maintain this type of pattern down the line. Yeah, and I think it's it's time too. It's it's going well. It's not a measure that I'm interested in, but somebody else might be interested in it, and it's going to tell more of a, I guess, a whole story. So if that takes a little bit more time, I think it's worth it in the long run in terms of what you can achieve from you know one research project worth X amount of, of dollars. Um, I, you know, no one is ever going to be able to be able to have interest and expertise in, in all areas, I guess, of, of health, but being able to have collaborators like that, that can, you know, can work with really well is, is super important. I think that's definitely one thing I've sort of learned across the scientific journey. It's just better to share than to, to hold on to it yourself. Um, you don't win anything by doing that. So what are you hypothesizing the outcomes of this being? So we're hoping that the, time-restricted eating will improve glycemic control. So they're wearing uh, continuous glucose monitors, the Freestyle Libra monitors. I don't know if you're aware of them. Like a 50-cent piece-sized um, little disc that gets um, a little sensor gets inserted on the, the back of the uh, upper arm or near the tricep um, area. And 
participants are given a little reader that they scan over the sensor every eight hours um, and it downloads the data. So we can see what's happening for them in that sort of habitual two-week period, but also in the four-week period where there are days that they may and may not be doing the time-restricted eating, how that's affecting glycemic control. So if they move their breakfast a little bit later and they try and eat their dinner a little bit earlier and don't snack after dinner, what, what is their glucose um, I guess profile across the day look like how does that affect measures we take at baseline you know so we do a mixed meal test before and after does that improve their glucose area under the curve does it have any effect on metabolites that are circulating in their um, serum and in their urine we've actually got some samples coming over to ECU um, with some a metabolomics um, specialists that we collaborate there uh, does it affect the microbiome? The guys and girls are collecting their stool samples, and again, they're coming over to ECU slash Curtin um, to a gut microbiome specialist uh, in WA. Um, these are things that we don't know, but but are quite exploratory and and I guess of interest in terms of looking at health as a as a whole. And I'm still you know only looking at a part of health. Um, what benefits can we get from time-restricted eating? How are those benefits related to how many days people were adherent? How are they related to the level, I guess, of uh, their someone's glycemic control at baseline, so their HbA1c when they're coming into the project? Are they, is their glucose normally quite well controlled or is it, you know, tending towards the sort of more out of control? Um, but but glycem behind feasibility, glycemic control is, is my main interest, yeah. It's a good insight into the level of research or the level of, of rigor that's required to pull this off and just the investment, in, not just the participants, but in you lot as well, and getting all these measures and, and keeping everything running smoothly. Yeah, and look, it, it, I mean, you know, we had a participant the other day who, who couldn't do the RMR, didn't like the, the hood made her claustrophobic, and it's just like, look, that's just one measure. Don't worry about it. We won't do it. Like there's, there's an, I guess, what we would like to achieve in terms of all of these outcomes and, and we'll try and measure as many as possible and, and it, when it's feasible. But then there's also you got to be a real person and go, well, that, that person couldn't do that. That's okay. Or person turns up in their stool bag. They're like, oh, I, I, I didn't collect any stool over the last 24 hours. And it's like, well, that's great. I didn't want to process it anyway. So that, that's kind of an, a good outcome for me. Um, but it's, I guess I've I've learned in in science, you know, when you get to the end and then someone goes, "Oh, did you get did you get this measure?" and you're like, "Oh, I you know, maybe that would have been so straightforward. I could have added it and it wouldn't take much time, but I didn't do it." Um so I do try and start I'm a very optimistic researcher and I like to put myself under a lot of pressure. Um but I do start with a long list and and try and peel back um if I can. But otherwise, you know, take the opportunity, um, not ask people to do anything I wouldn't do myself. Um so I've had a muscle biopsy, I've done a resting metabolic rate, I've pooed in a bag, you know, like I've done all these things that I'm asking someone else to do. Um so I know they're not unreasonable or unachievable. Um and maybe sometimes the level of of investigation puts people off but if we can capture it you know a really nice set of information it's going to give us sort of different avenues to explore um down the line and, and inform other research projects are you at a point in either your research or understanding of literature where do you be willing to offer some practical takeaways on perhaps the composition of meals or timing of eating um 
That's a good question. I think for each person, it's going to be different. Um, food, in terms of the so the timing and the composition of meals, food's really emotive. So food makes us feel really happy. Um, we use it in social situations and our families, you know, gatherings and celebrations. So I'm 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 turning away from the macronutrient advice uh, in a large way because I think that it. While it can have beneficial metabolic outcomes, I think it can also be negative to somebody's mental state or ability to adhere, etc. So I think working within what somebody's already doing and making smaller, more meaningful changes uh, is more important. So if somebody has diabetes or pre-diabetes and has a really big carbohydrate breakfast, you know, swapping that for something that's maybe slightly lower in carbohydrate but a bit more protein um, might be might be beneficial for them. They might not enjoy that though. You know, like there's there's positives and, and there's negatives to everything. Um, with time restricted eating, look, I think it's something that people can 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 give a go. I don't think I haven't seen any situations where it's detrimental, apart from when people are on medications that naturally or that cause blood sugar to go down. So there are some diabetic medications that um, people should seek advice from their doctors, such as when they're on insulin or when they're on medications called sulfonylureas, which directly stimulate the pancreas um, to release insulin. And when you do have periods of fasting and that medication is acting, it can cause some people's glucose to go quite low. Um, so those, I guess, would be some of the contraindications. Um, and there's, you know, that huge bunch of people out there that are that are shift workers that they say, well, time restricted eating, you know, may not work for me because of the the, the timing we're suggesting, um, and that's another kettle of fish in itself. But um, I guess awareness. A lot of my participants, we do qualitative questionnaires after this time restricted eating, and often they say it's given me a heightened awareness of what I'm eating and when I'm eating. And also an awareness that it's okay to be hungry sometimes. I think with diet and we're so used to having food available all the time that when we're hungry, the trigger is, well, let's eat food. Um, maybe a bit more mindfulness eating in terms of when did I last eat? Am I actually hungry or am I, I guess, um, socially hungry or am I uh, – hungry because this is the time of day that I normally eat, but I've actually just eaten a snack half an hour ago and I'm fine. Um, so for people trying time restricted eating, I think that's one of the potential biggest benefits is, is the change in, in mindset. So I don't think there's any huge guidelines. Um, I, my participants that finish the study then try and push their, most people like their eating window to be later because they like to eat dinner later in the, in the evening. That seems to be the most prohibitive. Um, but I, I challenge people to, you know, give it a go on five days of the week. I don't think it, it's something you have to do seven days of the week that encourages failure and people are then not, not likely to, to do well and, and feel well about it. Um, so being kind to yourself when you're, when you're trying something like this is, is key. So before we go, uh, where can people find you and keep up, keep up with you and get in touch and all that stuff? 
So any of the social media platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, we've got a Mary McKillop Institute for Health Research page that we advertise our research projects uh, on. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm across all of those things, probably not as Twitter active as I, as I should be. It just seems to be at conferences. Um, but, but yeah, certainly on, on all those social media platforms. 